This episode of China Unscripted, Jiang Zemin is dead, but his legacy lives on, and it's helping the party crack down on protests today. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Chow. And I'm Matt Ganesha. And, well, I think you know what we're going to talk about. There's obviously some pretty big news that has happened. Liver King is not natty. Can you believe it? Unbelievable. I, I mean, I never with, the, with those muscles, I just thought it was because he I'm ate just going to pretend I know what you're talking about. Oh, Shelly, there's a whole other underbelly of the internet you should expose yourself to. No, I don't. A, a, a very strong, ripped underbelly. I'm, oh, that's right. I'm incredibly tired. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Ancestral Supplements. Get your desiccated liver. <laughs> <laughs> um. Let's talk about the real thing. Yes. Okay, primals. Let's talk about the real thing. Uh, let's, I guess let's start with uh, uh, the death of Jiang Zemin. This was 96 years in the making. <laughs> uh, you know, for a while, it felt like he was just never going to die. He was blessed with a long life, really. Uh, Even though clearly he was in bad health for quite a bit of that. Yeah, I mean, there had been rumors swirling that Jiang was dying since mm, maybe August of this year. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, there have been rumors for like 15 years. Well, that's, off, but, but but that's the thing. That, yeah. uh, well, you know, back in 2011, the Hong Kong, uh, some Hong Kong media kind of jumped the gun and started reporting that Jiang was dead. And it led to this whole thing where a lot of overseas Chinese media picked it up and then it started to be reported as he's actually dead and then he was not dead. Yeah, he like met with the CEO of Starbucks like a week <laughs> after that. That was the proof, proof of life. Uh, Body double. Uh, <laughs> but, I just find it really ironic that he died of multiple organ failure. Uh, and leukemia. But. Well, I mean, they couldn't find enough organs, you mean? Yeah, or all the organs they've pumped him up with just couldn't, just failed ultimately. I mean, when you're 96. Doesn't matter how many fresh Falun Gong organs you cram inside of you. Reminds me of an Invader Zim episode. I don't even know what that is. Shelly, you're missing all of my references. Yeah, today. I don't. I'm, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, Jiang actually, in mid-November, there started to be even more rumors that he was dying or dead because there were kind of leaked instructions to internet providers like Baidu about how to um, turn websites into grayscale. Mm. for mourning purposes. So there was a lot of spe speculation around then that like maybe somebody big was going to die or was dying or had died and they were covering it up. Yeah. yeah. Well, like it's talking about the grayscale thing. I can't, I can't imagine the, I couldn't believe the kind of reaction people have been having to Jiang Zemin's death. I mean, you were saying that like, even a, a Burger King kiosk went grayscale. Yeah, someone posted a photo on Twitter of like a Burger King like ordering kiosks, the digital ones in China and they were all grayscale because of the morning period. But well that makes it just look more accurate to the actual burgers. <laughs> Those char-grilled burgers are full of flavor, Matt. This episode is sponsored by Burger King and Ancestral <laughs> Supplements. Stop. Uh, I don't know why that's so funny. <laughs> I, I don't know if I think you're exhausted. That's, We're all that's true. A little, it's been a long couple of weeks. It's yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's uh, been a long ten years. Go yeah, on. Yeah, but the 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 mourning period, like there are official rules from the CCP. Things like no entertainment programs are allowed to be broadcast. Um, like 
all the websites have to be in grayscale except for anything having to do with Xi Jinping or the 20th Party Congress. (laughs) 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 Like a little caveat there. Um, Yeah, just like there are a bunch of rules that, you know, websites and broadcasters have to follow. That's so strange to me, like no no entertainment programs. I mean, I think if anything, Jiang Zemin would want us to laugh. Uh, Or all sing, I don't know, what was he famous for singing? Love Me Tender? I know well, he cha-cha'd to Love Me Tender. I don't while know singing said. Love Me Tender. Oh, I did? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's, I'm Quite sure. Quite a character. The Filipino president probably had nightmares about that afterwards. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that's the that's the thing about Jiang. He's kind of like a walking meme, like a, a clown show in many ways. You know, I've seen people posting like the so young, so naive. Oh, he, well, the times he yelled at, this was... Hong Kong reporters, right? Yeah, it was. He was in Hong Kong speaking to reporters, and I don't remember what the question the reporter asked him is, but like it, like there was he a tirade. Home. Yeah, uh, and he, some some in Chinese, some in English, um, and it became so. Uh, I think we actually reposted it a few years ago, mm-hmm. and that video has four point three million views. Yeah, yeah, it does, and it's just it's no commentary. It's just the footage of him. Just going off on yeah. uh, these Hong Kong reporters, like this, uh, too simple, so naive, or so simple, too naive. I forget what, but like that was in English. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, be- <laughs> yeah, that became a meme. Yeah, but it's like it's like that's it was like an awful thing he did. That's now become a thing that people are like. Oh, but he had so much personality. Oh yeah, I mean, I was kind of appalled that I saw on Twitter a lot of China watchers who really I thought should know better, like posting things about like, oh, who knew that we would look back on this as the good old days, you know, where the the leader of China seemed like a human being, like, I guess, contrasting him to Xi Jinping or talking about how much they loved, like all the weird stuff Jiang did. So like when Kanye West talks about Hitler, (laughs) he's schizophrenic, okay? (laughs) When these people talk about praising Jiang Zemin, what's their excuse? Well, I think there is, I have to say one of the things that Jiang was really good at is elite capture. Yeah. Like he knew, people love, uh, you know, people love a show, right? So he kind of, (laughs) people kind of knew, he knew that people enjoyed, and I think he just had that kind of personality too. And he knew English. Yes. He could, he had like party tricks, like he could recite the Gettysburg Address, which I think Mm. he did to Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes. Oh, that was another thing that like, because he took an interview from 60 Minutes that was seen as like, oh, he was so open and he was willing to talk about, like he talked about, uh, like, I think this was 2000 or something like that or 2001. So Mike Wallace asked him about, you know, why they they were persecuting Falun Gong. And the the fact that he was willing to answer a question was seen, was seen as, oh, amazing. But like he answered the question by calling Falun Gong a cult. And basically, Mike Wallace was like, but, you know, you persecute people who practice religions, like Falun Gong and Christians and stuff like that. And Jiang was like, no, Christians are totally different. And then Mike Wallace was like, you don't persecute Christians? And Jiang was like, no, we do not persecute Christians. And then he was like, but of course, Christians have to follow the law. So if any Christians break the law. (laughs) So he was just lying the whole time. Mm -hmm. But that scene as somehow like, oh, a proof of China's openness. Yeah. It's is really... it that he's openly lying? <laughs> that he's openly he's lying. openly lying. Yeah. So speaking of elite capture, 
You know, like one of the people I think that that was well captured by Jiang Zemin and more broadly by the Chinese Communist Party was uh, U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, who just posted something on her website on November 30th, like basically mourning his death, calling him his quote, he showed himself to be an intelligent and joyful man. There is that photo of Jiang singing karaoke with Dianne Feinstein and Willie Brown, who was the mayor of San, San Francisco. Francisco at the time. Oh, yeah, dear. well, because because Feinstein and uh, Jiang Zemin also like they, they had a relationship before he was president because San Francisco and Shanghai were sister cities, and they used to do that sister city relationship. And Feinstein, her husband, made a lot of money in China. Oh yeah, Richard Blum, I believe, or Bloom. He, yeah, he's like a billionaire. A lot of that through China. It's, it's like kind of terrifying when you dig into, like, U.S. officials' relationship with China and how they gain financially from it. Like, it's, it's yeah, pretty dark. The, the scope of the CCP's infiltration into the U.S. is is staggering. It's kind of hard to just summarize in a few. Right, and a big part of that was. Uh, getting China into the World Trade Organization, which Jiang Zemin spearheaded because he was the leader at the time. And it's so strange. It's being talked about like, oh, the, what a good thing that was. And like, that, would, that, that was awful for the whole world. I mean, like, just because the Chinese Communist Party has broken, you know, dozens of World Trade Organization rules. It manipulated it, its economy to yeah. drive out American businesses. Uh, they got, you know, they put subsidies when they're not allowed to have subsidies. They have restrictions on U.S. goods when they're not allowed to do that. But here's the thing, and I think Jiang Zemin realized this: that the World Trade Organization has certain requirements for getting in, but there's no provision in the World Trade Organization for kicking out a member state. So basically. Zhang must have realized, like, once I'm in, there's no way they can kick me out legally. And if they do, we can sue them and use, like, lawfare, essentially, which is like legal warfare, to stop them from, from imposing consequences. And, and that's been incredibly successful, that strategy. I think that, yeah, Jiang's weird personality also gave a lot of... Uh, these, you know, U.S. officials or other world officials cover to embrace China and the CCP. Remember, Jiang came to power. He was appointed general secretary of the CCP in 1989 by Deng Xiaoping. Yeah, like like three weeks after the massacre. Yeah, and because he was, he supported it. Yeah, and he was there. Well, because he was able to put down a student demonstration in Shanghai, mm -hmm. and he supported Deng and the hardliners' policy of like putting down the student demonstrations. So he was replacing Zhao Ziyang, the 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 general secretary who went to Tiananmen Square and tried to beg the students to leave before the tanks came in because he knew what was going to happen. Uh, and then- Whereas Zhang Zemin also knew what was going to happen, but didn't beg the students to leave. Well, I mean, he was in Shanghai at the time, but the whole thing was that Deng decided he needed to replace like a patsy like Zhao, who was, you know, trying to save the students' lives uh, with somebody who would just obey instructions, right? Mm -hmm. like, While also not being like a- like sort of a Lee Pung hardliner who who wouldn't have pushed the economic reforms that Deng, you know, that was Deng's thing, the whole reform and opening up. Yeah. Jiang also went along with that. Yeah. Although Deng had to reprimand Jiang in like 92, Deng's like Southern Yeah, on his tour. Southern tour. Yeah. Because, yeah, he, he said something like he went to Shanghai, Jiang's power base, and was like, 
The pace of economic reform isn't keeping up, and the central leadership, wink, wink, is to blame. I don't know why he said the wink, wink sounds. But, <laughs> uh, but, you know, Doug had a personality, too. Yeah. Like he wore a cowboy hat. Look at that. So Western. Uh, but yeah. Is that all it takes to have a personality? Well, I mean, I guess if you compare it to um, Hu Jintao or... You know, Xi Jinping were very reserved. Well, Hu Jintao had a personality. It's just that that personality was the same as a block of wood. Well, no, we the another video that we posted on our channel that was very very popular is a video of Hu Jintao as a young man, very was, happy, energetic, and, human almost. And like the difference between that and like the joke about him being coming a block of wood, wood face is what they call yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, you just like. It's kind of like the 60P sucks the life out of you. Like to oh, actually yeah. get to the position of being general secretary or in the Politburo standing committee or something like that. Like you have to do a lot of terrible things. Yeah. I mean the, the whole culture is struggle. So like you don't have friends. You have people who you can either manipulate to further your ambitions or enemies trying to destroy you. And sometimes you're not sure which is which. Yeah. Yeah. And But yeah, so this whole nostalgia about Jiang is so strange because, I mean, he committed crimes against humanity. He's responsible for, like, launching really the organ harvesting of prisoners of conscience to what it is today. He was able to, with his persecution of Falun Gong, he basically set up the police surveillance state that is now being used to persecute Uyghurs. Uh, zero COVID would not be possible without the system he set up. Yeah, I mean, I think... The thing that people have to understand about the CCP is like once you set up a system, uh, it is very hard to get rid of that system. Mm -hmm. So once Jiang decided that he needed to set up like a nationwide uh, like surveillance system and a system that almost superseded like other communist like state organs and things like that in order to be able to like persecute Falun Gong across all the different like departments and stuff like that in the government and the party, then the that system that he set up had to do something after they ran out of Falun Gong mm -hmm. practitioners, right? Like that's not going to go away because you have this whole system where people have been making money, where people have been promoted, where they've like learned this whole repression system. And what happened uh, after 2009 uh, with the Xinjiang, yeah, I mean, you can't uh, let all that training go to waste. Yeah, so then, like, it moved to essentially persecuting Uyghurs. And, you know, people have written, I think there was an article in the Jamestown Foundation about this, and there was an article from China Change that looked specifically at the fact that there are people who rose up through the ranks persecuting Falun Gong who were then transferred to Xinjiang to mm -hmm. persecute the Uyghurs. So it's literally the same people, the same system being used all over again on a different group. And now with zero COVID, you have the beginning, like that being used on a nationwide scale. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of nostalgia, not just on like the Western, like, oh, Jiang was a wacky guy who combed his hair at, you know. In front of the king of Spain. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> and like did all this like weird karaoke all the time and stuff like that. But also there's nostalgia on the Chinese side. And it's kind of a pointed thing where it's like comparing life under Xi Jinping and life under Jiang Zemin. And the idea was like, oh, things were so much better in the good old days. Not if you were a Falun Gong practitioner. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
that's actually it's interesting that like uh, Jiang's persecution of Falun Gong was not mentioned in his official obituary. That is well, interesting because she wasn't successful. I think. I mean, he he was su- to some degree successful, but I think not. I don't like know. He had that's hoped. what it is. I mean, that that's that requires a lot of thought and analysis. No, I, like, I, th- I wonder. I think about. he was humiliated because he initially said that he could get rid of Falun Gong in three months, and he failed so badly to get rid of Falun Gong because the the sort of strength of the community was so much greater. Than he I mean, I, I could imagine it's like also a decision like they don't want to really call attention to that. Then like it's like, oh, this embarrassing defeat of Jiang Zemin. There, there, could, there could be a lot of other reasons. Well, I agree with that. But I also think I'm right that that's a, an important reason. And I hear that you think you're right. <laughs> I hear that you hear that I think I'm right. <laughs> but let me tell you. Uh, uh, but I think that a lot of this nostalgic about Jiang, like people don't really remember what happened. No, in, no, in, definitely in, not. I mean, a lot of the people were probably only born uh, in the late 80s or 90s or whatever, like were not alive. Or, yeah, I mean, it know. was a time when like, like after Mao, like you could actually make some money. And that meant like people could buy things and like it was like objectively there was an improvement in the quality of life. Yes. If you compare it to what it was under Mao, there was an improvement generally, although uh, China's entry into the WTO and the turning of China into the world's factories also exacerbated a huge rural urban divide. Also massive pollution that is probably going to completely destroy the country now or in the next 10, 20 years. Yeah. There was a Chinese – like a Chinese commentator, um, Wen Zhao, who compared it to um, like th- it seemed like the the good life was happening under Jiang uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, but it was like borrowing off a credit card. Yeah. And now you have to pay the debt. Yeah. And well, so that's, that's the issue, like especially for a lot of young people, um, you know, people who were maybe like just born in the early 2000s, like their parents had done better. And now they're getting to the point where, like, there there are no jobs for young people in China anymore. Zero COVID is a mess. So they just have this general idea that, like, oh, things were, you know, better for our parents back then. Things are really bad now. And they don't understand that everything that's happening today is a result of Jiang Zemin. But, but can't you just get a new credit card and transfer your debt I think, balance? I think that's what the, the CCP is hoping that they can do. <laughs> <laughs> Until they can, like, the environment is so completely destroyed, they don't even have any water. Yeah, and I think things like, uh, yeah, China, like, a lot of people did have a better economic life, but also it was, like, a terrible, difficult transition for a lot of people with... Um, yeah, I mean, there was still huge uh, wealth discrepancy. I think, like, still, like, 700 million people make less than $10 a day. Well, China's still and, very And poor. think about all it, the... All the like rural people who were encouraged to move to the cities to after China entered the WTO and became this world's manufacturing hub, there were all these people that for decades were doing this like almost slave labor, even though they were paid, but paid minuscule amounts, f- forced to essentially live on campus Work at the factories. long hours, no Crazy unions, hours, no like, rights. No, yeah, no unions. I mean, China has an official trade union, but they're designed to make sure people don't unionize. Uh-huh. Uh, and... Yeah, just like like horrible, unsafe conditions and making all this cheap stuff. And at the same time, like, you know, 
young people who had kids like had to leave their kids back in the countryside with the grandparents. And like, it just destroyed these families, ripped them apart, put people in horrible conditions for a really long time. Uh, I mean, US companies look at this positively because so many companies were able to get the same products for so much cheaper, yeah. um, you know, because it's so much cheaper to just hire some rural Chinese well, person to make it. That's really what you're seeing now, like with the hypocrisy of, you know, like Apple, like criticizing Elon Musk and Twitter and all this, but at the same time, they're helping the CCP uh, suppress protesters. Not that Elon Musk has clean hands when it comes to the CCP. Definitely true. Uh, but yeah, the Apple airdrop thing was kind of disgusting. That and thing. it's, the, I mean, they did the same thing to the Hong Kong protesters too. There was, uh, you know, an app that helped people like identify where the police were and then they, Apple removed it from the app store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it was violating something, terms something, and something. conditions. And, uh, and that the, the airdrop thing, just explain that because you didn't. Oh, that uh, they basically disabled mass airdrop sharing for a certain amount of time because people... Like, I forget, it was like 10 minutes or something like that. Like, the yeah. people were, because people during the protests were spreading the protests by just like airdropping everybody with, within a certain, as far as the geographic radius could go. Cause then you could, and I, we experienced this in Hong Kong too. Remember <laughs> where we would occasionally just like get airdrops, randomly of get ran airdrops, yeah. randomly get airdrops of like, there's gonna be a protest uh, on this date and time or like, some kind of document that of grievances or something like that. Uh, and so that was happening in China. And so Air, Air, Apple uh, basically disabled that ability. Yeah. So, so really like the story of Zhang's men, the CCP broadly is like, like this oligarchy in the West and in China becoming very rich and powerful and everyone else getting completely screwed. I mean, you know, the gutting of American manufacturing, the fact that, you know, Michigan auto workers were suddenly competing against slave labor in Shenzhen. I mean, people don't even know about this, I think, a lot in China, but there were riots in the countryside in the 90s under Jiang because of the income inequality issues. Yeah. Oh, and then there was also like that uh, uh, blood transfusion scheme that got everyone oh, AIDS. In, in Hunan. Well, yeah. yes. That Just lots of bad things happened that under wasn't, Jiang. That wasn't... Jiang specifically. Yeah, I'm just remembering like, like there's there's just so much horrible things that have always happened under the Chinese Communist Party rule. I mean, again, like I think it is interesting that like, you know, poor schizophrenic Kanye West had his insanity and like people are like, oh, what a monster talking about the Nazis like that. Well, that's where currently so many politicians and institutions and businesses are just happily in bed with the Chinese Communist Party. And it's like, you know, never again actually just kept happening. Well, but but the, the difference now is that we can make money in China, Chris. Actually, I want to talk about the corruption, if that's okay. Uh, sure. Uh, that under Jiang, I think, because that is something that a lot of people don't realize. Uh, oh, yeah, I get where you're going. Yeah, that part of the whole thing with China going to the WTO and all of these, all of a sudden, all this like foreign direct investment coming into China, like all this foreign money going in, uh, Jiang, basically because he had no good power base at the time, um, he essentially stayed well, in power. Just to uh, expand on that, he didn't really have a good power base because he wasn't supposed to be the leader of China. 
Yeah. Like he, he was kind of in Shanghai. He didn't have power in Beijing. He was just sort of like this compromise between these different factions in the Communist Party to be like. And he jumped up too fast, essentially, to bef- before building a power He base. was a little too young, too naive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not very simple guy, though. Pretty conniving, actually. But uh, he essentially, the two things he did to build the power base was one, he started the persecution of Falun Gong, which meant that he could uh, promote people, establish this nationwide like uh, super security state, and then promote his people to be in charge of it and build a power base that way. And the other thing he did was he allowed rampant corruption to happen in the CCP. Like in under Mao, even under Deng, there wasn't enough money coming into China for like CCP officials in general, both low-level f- officials and high-level officials to like make it rich, to be really corrupt, right? Under Jiang, like all this Western money is being pumped in, you know, CCP officials, their family members, they really cashed in. Yeah. So when we talk about like all the corruption and like, you know, these uh, CCP officials being found with like gold bars in their homes or like a hundred mistresses or like all of these crazy stories. This is possible because uh, Jiang fostered this culture of corruption so that he could maintain power within the CCP. Which is why Xi Jinping was able to use an anti-corruption campaign to go after his political rivals tied to Jiang because they were objectively very, very corrupt. Yeah. I, I want to add something uh, to what you said about the corruption because you mentioned that that Jiang had created this sort of security state. And he had created the what's called the 610 office on June 10th, I guess, 1999 to, to be this organization, this Gestapo. And... Like it came at a time where like the the 80s and the 90s to some degree were this, were a time where a lot of people in China thought that there could be reforms and move towards more of a rules-based, law-based system. But the creation of the 610 office, which in and of itself was outside the government's well, control. I mean, the Tiananmen Square massacre was also like the, the the end to the idea that there would be political reform. Yes, but I, I think the, the impact of having the 610 office is, is not to be understated because when you create an organization that is specifically outside the purview of government uh, and has enormous power, then uh, you're creating a system that is meant to be outside the rule of law. And then when you start giving it lots of power to persecute people who haven't committed anything that would have been actually considered a crime under a normal rule of law system, then you just start moving further and further away from that government's ability to have rule of law. Like if you say, okay, well, this, you know, the constitution guarantees freedom of religion, and then you go after someone for practicing their religion using this extra legal organization that that has, that really in reality has the authority to do that then there's just there's basically no way to move towards a proper legal system. And in fact, as time goes on, the very existence of this uh, m- moves the entire country further and further away from any kind of proper legal system. And so I would say the impact of Jiang Zemin using this to uh, you know, build his own power base with this security system is like the impact directly made it 
harder and harder and now impossible for the Communist Party to ever have rule of law. I just, I just think that's, that's, that's a legacy of Jiang Zemin where a different leader could have possibly moved things in a different direction. He specifically moved them away from a legal system. That's, that's what I have to say. Hmm. Uh, well, I mean, definitely it's clear that the Communist Party controls society and the government is just sort of uh, an appendage it uses. Uh, yeah, I mean, lots of stuff in China sits outside of the government. Like the, the military is a Communist Party branch. It's not part of the government. How Jiang started the whole like strengthening the military thing too in the 90s. Yeah. But yeah, I see what you mean though, because China didn't really have a legal system in some ways until the... 80s, they started to be like, oh, oh, crap, we need to start developing this actual system. Right. And, and then lawyers like uh, Gao Zhisheng and, and Chen Guangcheng were like inspired by this idea that, oh, like, you know, maybe we can help, you know, build the legal system if we become lawyers. You know, the barefoot lawyer thing, which is kind of a reference to the idea of like, you know, barefoot doctors going around spreading medicine. Yeah. And it worked for a while. Mm -hmm. until they started challenging this, the CCP. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem with the rule of law. It means even the government and officials have to abide by the law. Yeah, so I think that is that is a good point, Matt, that like... Thank you, Shelley. <laughs> the legal system is, is getting further and further away from what it could have been. Right. And also because the 80s were that whole, like a lot of things were more were beginning to get more open because Mao had died. And like now right. there was the possibility that the mm -hmm. CCP could have gone down a different route than it did. Right. Like, like look at Hong Kong in the, in the last two years. Uh, the CCP has started to infiltrate Hong Kong's legal system. And now Hong Kong's legal system is basically gone forever because they're now using uh, like rules from the Hong Kong national security law like subversion of state power, collusion with foreign forces and so on, essentially to persecute political dissidents in Hong Kong. And once those things are actually, once they've begun to happen, like once you're able to lock up people like Jimmy Lai and lock up people like Joshua Wong and so on, who never committed real crimes, they've only committed political crimes, then good people who want to be in that legal system no longer want to be part of it because they know that they're going to be overruled or they themselves could be persecuted for trying to be fair and just. And so very quickly, we've seen Hong Kong's legal system get corrupted by this communist party mentality. Interesting you mentioned Jimmy Lai because the latest thing that's happened with that is Jimmy Lai has been trying to get a British attorney mm -hmm. to be able to represent him in his national security law case. And there's been this fight where the Hong Kong government has been trying to prevent him from being able to use a British attorney. And then the Hong Kong court ruled that it was okay for him to use this British attorney. And now the Hong Kong government has asked the CCP to intervene and mm -hmm. in interpret the national security law. Uh, hopefully on their side, right, to uh, keep Jimmy Lai from being able to use this attorney. So... Um, that's infuriating. That I mean, what, what's, That is like literally what you're talking about. Yeah, right? yeah, no, it's... it's and also, they delayed his trial. Mm -hmm. So, which is arbitrary. I mean, you're right to a... There's, there's no right to a, a speedy and fair trial in, in China, including Hong Kong now. Yeah, it's... That's quite... 
I mean, it's it's appalling and terrifying to watch that happen. And and so you know, be, given that that there was legal reform under Deng Xiaoping, uh, it's Jiang Zemin's legacy that has ensured that uh, China's legal system has been completely corrupted forever. Yeah. I mean, not that Deng was a great guy. Like, I feel like the thing about general hostility is that- Yeah, we're, we're not going to look back villains. on Deng either. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. I mean, it's just that like in the 80s, largely led by Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang, there was like these guys were actually pushing for some kind of political reform. And then the rest kind of the party- yeah. Kind of, kind of, like just a little bit. But then the rest of the party was like, nah, and purged Hu Yaobang- Yes. And then purge John, uh, Jazz I mean, like, who about also, he wasn't like asking for democracy or anything no, like no. that. Like, these are all CCP people in the end. So, like, in the in their actions, the CCP always has to come out on top. Um, Zhao Ziyang may be an exception to this because he basically sacrificed his political career and freedom to try to prevent the Tiananmen Square massacre. Yeah, I mean, he spent the rest of his life under house. Arrest. Yeah, like literally and He after... went from being like the guy who was going to succeed, Deng Xiaoping, to house arrest for the rest of his life. Yeah, he literally, right after leaving Tiananmen Square, was put under house arrest. Yeah. And he died in 2005 under house arrest. Yeah. So in a way, I guess you could say that Zhao Ziyang made a choice there. Yeah, and like, you know, we were talking about with um, Hu Jintao, mm -hmm. um, like just how in this, this system, like you never know who your friends are, you know, like everyone's enemy. Like once upon a time, these two guys were considered Deng Xiaoping's left and right hands. And he was completely willing to throw them under the bus. Wait, who was? Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang. Oh, they, yes. They were called yes. his, his, you know, left and right hand. And then, yeah, he, he just, he was fine throwing them under the bus for you know, ultimately preserving the totalitarian grip of the Communist Party itself. And then put Jiang in power, who then created the mess yeah. we're in today. There is one more thing that Jiang did that I think a lot of people don't know a lot about. I see it in the notes. Yeah, which is that he led a crackdown of, on, of the one-child policy in 1990. And this kind of directly led to China's demographic collapse that we're seeing right now. Yeah. Because uh, the the one-child policy technically had been in place since the late 70s, but like the enforcement was very, in the beginning, it was very light. Even during the 80s, like it was kind of like in different places, you'd find different levels of enforcement. But by the 80s, you, they had developed the system where like women had to have their periods monitored by the workplaces. And once you had a kid, you had to apply to have a kid. And then once you had a kid, like they would insert an IUD into you immediately so that you couldn't have more kids. And there are a bunch of other things that are already set up, but um, there were still a lot of holes in the system. And Jiang led like kind of a nationwide um, I guess, attempt to strengthen the one-child po policy and make it more strict. Uh, and that led directly to things like there was a county in the Shandong province called Guan County, which in 1991, they were reprimanded by the Shandong pro provincial uh, leadership for having too many births in their county. So they decided they would have, the party leader of that county decided they would have a campaign uh, of a hundred childless days. So a hundred days, no babies, which meant that if you were already pregnant, forced abortion. If you, if your 
kid was born in those 100 days, they literally killed babies. Like, this is uh, something that didn't come out until many years later. But it was like a brutal massacre of, you know, any baby that was born during that time. Like, people were trying to hide their kids. It was like a really terrible thing. And this was directly because of pressure from the provincial government, because of pressure from the national central government, because there were too many births happening still under the one child policy. But, you know, Jiang, he was such an intelligent and joyful man. <laughs> but but actually, like the long term consequences, right, the credit card debt of even if you're not horrified at that from a human level, uh-huh. like the long term uh, problems now are uh, that you know, China is, the birth rate is so low that they are not able to essentially replace the population. And I think the projections are that by 2100, like 2100, that like China's population will be half of what it is, 730 million people. And you know, that's not even including any kind of like famine caused by like natural disasters from like not having water anymore. Because they've polluted the country so much. Yeah, I mean, like, that's a long way away, so we don't know what will happen in 80 years. But uh, the the population's already started shrinking. Yeah. Like, the that whole, if you look at the China's birth rate since the 90s, this has essentially been flat. Yeah, well, it's interesting how just, like, how, like, corrosive this kind of evilness is. Like... You know, they, they did these horrible things and like that's causing all kinds of problems in, in Chinese society today. But also like the West's willingness to like turn a blind eye to that and get so invested in China. It's also corroding us here. You know, just the fact that we're dependent on medical supplies from China. You know, the fact that if China does have this kind of massive economic collapse, we're all tied. Our economies are all tied there. It will also completely derail our societies as well. And just like these these horribly evil things that are done just have this corrosive effect that just destroys human society. Remember when people were like, oh, if we let China join the World Trade, Trade Organization, they're going to become more liberalized like us. But in fact, what has happened is we in the West have become more like China. Again, looking at Apple and their willingness to support the Chinese regime, Google... Once upon a time said, don't be evil. And they got rid of that. I mean, you, you have to slowly get rid of- Become you know, more all, evil. Yeah. But 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 there's so many opportunities to make money in China if only you can sacrifice your values. Wicked Babylon. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been terribly corrosive to the entire planet. And uh, thank you, Jiang Zemin. Yeah, I mean, not that he was the- origin of all of the terrible things that happened under the CCP. No, no, it would be the Dirty Reds. I agree with that. What about you, Shelley? <laughs> Shelley, you look like you could use some raw liver to live your most actualized primal self. Okay, Fine, let's talk about the protests. Uh, well, I mean, it, this does kind of carry on directly from the, the Jiang Zemin thing because zero COVID is, uh, you know, a result of, like, it wouldn't be able to exist without the security apparatus Jiang 
helped build, particularly internet surveillance. Yeah, I mean, which the West also helped China build. It's interesting because uh, I think that anybody who was head of the CCP during the time when the internet was starting to happen would probably have built the Great Firewall. Like mm-hmm. the CCP just cannot last without that type of information suppression. But um, what I didn't know, which was after, until reading Ethan Gutman's book, The Slaughter, was that in in the mind of the central leadership, that Jiang, that a lot of the internet censorship was needed to fight Falun Gong. Because he had interviewed Hao Feng Jun, who was a Chinese defector who had been a 610 police officer. And from Hao's um, basic, like, testimony was that the beginning of a lot of these internet censorship apparatuses was because they were trying to like fight Hong Kong on the internet. And and so that just goes back to that, that idea of like how these like, you know, like when you turned a blind eye to evil, like what was happening with Falun Gong, like that just has such, so much, so many consequences down the line that is now like affecting us. Like if people had like, you know, actually done something about crimes against humanity, in China, like that, basically it's just, you know, they turned a blind eye and then China like became the Orwellian surveillance state. If there had been. And then they used it on the next group, the Uyghurs, and now they're using it on the next group, which is basically every person in China under zero COVID. And, you know, that destroys their economy, which then hurts us as well. It's like when you turn a blind eye to evil, there are consequences. Yeah, but there's really no reason to speak out on behalf of Falun Gong if you're not Falun Gong. Or if you're not a Uyghur, you know. Right. And hey, wasn't Jiang a reformer? Uh, What a mess. So anyway, yes, the internet censorship was developed in large part because they needed a way to block Falun Gong websites from spreading information that was counter to the propaganda narrative. I had no no idea. I mean, although, you know, even Cisco in there um, looking at opportunities to help sell routers and equipment to China to build the firewall uh, had a PowerPoint presentation where they acknowledged essentially that like one of the reasons that the CCP wanted to build the internet security was for, you know, to per- to persecute Falun Gong. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it's in a Cisco PowerPoint. I, I, saw, I saw the slide deck and it was something like, like this can assist in, you know, monitoring groups like Falun Gong. But, and there was actually a lawsuit about that, but what I recall is that Cisco was able to avoid the lawsuit uh, on some kind of technical grounds. So not, you know, they're not held responsible for anything like that. They just helped China build the firewall. No problem. I mean, they didn't technically, they just sold them a bunch of stuff. They just sold them the tools. And taught them how to use it so yeah. they could build the firewall themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, just because... The U.S. gave the Taliban a bunch of weapons and military training. <laughs> Doesn't mean. Oh, you mean in the 70s? Yeah. Okay. I was like, I don't know that the U.S. purposely gave the Taliban weapons, but we, I was thinking we, we, of. Yes. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That, that too, just leaving them a bunch of, of, bunch of weapons. Ah, uh, we Oops. are in a horrible timeline, aren't we? Uh, yeah. Where the liver king isn't natty. <laughs> yeah, that's truly the tragedy. But I think we were just oh, trying to talk insane. about we were trying to talk about the white paper protests. 
Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's one aspect of the protest. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting because this was also something that they did in Hong Kong. Holding up the blank sheets of paper? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And now protesters in China. I don't think it's... I mean, considering the censorship in China, I don't even know if the people in China knew about the Hong Kong white paper protest. And it kind of has a different meaning, the idea that, like, you know, everything is being censored, so we'll just hold up blank pieces of paper. Yeah. In Hong Kong, it was post-national security law that yeah. they started doing so, so it was like the, the individual slogans in Hong Kong were being banned on national security grounds, Well, right? I don't think they had and even so, started that yet. It was just like people were like, can you arrest me for holding a piece of paper up? Yeah. And, and the, the answer is accepted. yes. <laughs> yeah. So same thing in China, right? Like holding up a white piece of paper. Uh, but like, it, I am very impressed that people were willing to do that because, you know, now we have reports that people are, because of phone geolocation and different things, like people are already being called into police stations and warned like off. If, and, if you're... Uh, if the police discover that your phone's GPS signal was in the vicinity of a protest, they may visit you at your home, you know, a day or two later. Which is a great you. extension of the technology they use for zero COVID, the sort of location tracking. Uh, and yeah, like what if what if Apple, instead of like limiting airdrop, would like... I don't know, there's, there's things they could do, like uncensor their, their phones or don't allow... I mean, surely there's something no, like but, tech but Apple has do to, to Apple has to follow the laws. Local laws. Yeah. You know, in each region, you know. Lets them completely off the hook. I mean, what are they what are they using their money for? Liver supplements? <laughs> like what great things can you buy that you're willing to sell out humanity? Uh private Apple jets. products? Or liver supplements. Yeah. You, you'll be living so actualized. But yeah, I mean, I suppose it's important to say now that we are recording this episode on Friday, December 2nd. Yes. So there is a weekend coming up that like there could be major things that happen. There could be more more protests. And I think one of the reasons that this Jiang's death kind of came at like a weird and tricky time is that in the past, Chinese leaders' deaths have led to protests in China. It happened after Zhou Enlai died in the 70s. Uh, it happened after Hu Yaobang died in 89. That's the thing that triggered the Tiananmen Square protests. Mm-hmm. And so the the CCP is probably, like Xi Jinping is probably like not happy. Yeah, I mean, it's like what, what a couple of days of China news it really has been. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like things don't change for so long and then suddenly All everything changes. All at once. Yeah, uh, you see these like protests that haven't happened since the Tiananmen Square protests which were nationwide in the eight in 89 and like suddenly you have these nationwide anti-covid lockdown protests and then suddenly john zemin dies and seemed like he would be around forever yeah i mean now like they're definitely trying to clamp down on any more protests police are out in mass um yeah it's tricky to you gotta let people quote unquote mourn john zemin especially because the way that Tsinghua has in their obituary has positioned him is that he was like a great CCP leader who, you know, did all these great things. Um, and we have to like, you know, ha- have his legacy go on in, in the spirit of the CCP kind of stuff. Um, and, and also Xi Jinping is the chair of the Jiang Zemin funeral committee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, delicious irony, the general hostility. <laughs> But uh, at the same time, they can't let people get 
too protesty. And then like a lot of the nostalgia about Jiang is being used as a kind of pointed criticism of current things. Yeah, well, the great thing about the surveillance state that Jiang helped develop is that they can let people vent during protests and not have the police be, like, and not send in the tanks essentially like they did in 89, but because they now have essentially a digital record of everyone who went to a protest, if that person showed part of their face and or was carrying a mobile phone, they can just crack down later. And this was a very successful strategy in Hong Kong because remember when we were there, like there were rumors there, oh, like, are they gonna send in the tanks? Are they gonna get, you know, are the Chinese police or military gonna come in and be super violent? No, because it was all being recorded on camera and posted to the internet on Twitter or whatever. So the new strategy for cracking down on protests is instead of cracking down immediately, you kind of let them happen, not let too much police violence get captured on film, and then later you go after the people you think were protest leaders or you think might come out again. And then you can, you can do things to them in private that are much more severe. Uh, and the, the world's not going to know about it. Well, we have seen, uh, you know, after, after the last weekend of protests, uh, you know, mass arrests happening after the fact. Um, so, yeah, I think there is something to that. However, I mean, mainland China is, is still different from... Hong Kong, there's, I think the CCP probably feels a little less limitations on what they can and can't do. Possibly, but I don't think they're going to send in the tanks. I think people just no. assume that it's going to be like a Tiananmen Square repeat. Although but, even but, with a Tiananmen Square massacre, I mean, it's like, what what did that really do to the party's reputation? Bo it was Bush, bad for a for couple years. of no, years. No, like that, like a couple of weeks later, Bush sent a oh, secret but, delegation but to quietly. China. Yeah, quietly, but saying, don't worry, it's not going to yeah. affect the relationship. So they knew, they knew pretty straight away that they could, they could massacre tens of thousands of students and really not have much of a blowback. I mean, I think the interesting thing about Tiananmen is that most people don't know today that the Tiananmen massacre uh, basically came after nationwide protests. And you mentioned this, like all over the country, people were protesting in solidarity, but we only have footage of what happened in and around Tiananmen Square and Chang'an Avenue. And- Because Western it, journalists were there for right, something else. Right, and so if if not for that, for that actual video footage and photographs, like, because we don't know about the other massacres that happened in all these other cities. Yeah, many, many years later, Louisa Lim wrote a book, uh, about the, I think the People's Republic of Amnesia is what it's called, which That's is about uh, the Tiananmen Square protest and all the other, pro and she kind of uncovered this story of another massacre that happened in Chengdu. Yeah, which, but, but it it didn't happen because, you know, what, what do they say, picks or it didn't happen, right? Yeah, And that's, there were, that's there essentially were. how people view. There were eyewitness statements, including from people from the US consulate, but then somehow like at the time there were, these statements, but then somehow after that, like thirty years, people didn't remember. So, so all I mean, all it takes is a few really good, I mean, really one great photo or or video footage. And in the case of Tiananmen, it was Tank Man, really, that that epitomized it. And you know, something that comes out of the current protests could be uh, could be the Tank Man of the current protest era. And the Communist Party wants to make sure 
that doesn't happen. Well, arguably, the bridge, the Satome Bridge incident that happened ahead in October ahead of the party congress. That was kind of tank manny. You know, people started calling him Bridge Man. Yeah, the guy who hung up these protest banners calling for an end to COVID restrictions and calling for Xi Jinping to step down, et cetera. And then he was arrested and disappeared. Just like Tank Man. But then, uh, you know, afterwards, people started posting those messages in places like public bathrooms, and they started doing all this, uh, both overseas and in China, all these protests. And, yeah. Speaking of that and these current protests, um, you know, I've, I've heard people say that, oh, you know, there's basically no hope for China. People are so brainwashed. They're just all nationalistic uh, little pinks. But, like, I, I always disagreed with that because I, I feel like we just don't know. There's, I imagine there was a lot of resentment against the Chinese Communist Party sort of simmering under the surface. And, you know, there's no way to really show it. But these protests, I think, really have demonstrated that that is the case. It's like not... All of China's society is not brainwashed. They know what's going on. Like we saw not just Bridgeman, but the response to Bridgeman. How many people, and especially Chinese people around the world, started posting those messages or in China spreading those messages in the in the toilet revolution because they could put put his messages up in toilets since there was no surveillance in there, hopefully. Um, but then with these protests, you know, we saw people saying, you know, Xi Jinping stepped down, CCP stepped down. Like that was not even something that was said during Tiananmen Square. Like those, the, not, like they were not calling until for the very end. Yeah, yeah, they were mostly calling for just like really modest political, political reform. reform. It didn't turn into a pro-democracy protest until like in the last weeks of Tiananmen Square. Yeah, so I mean, this just really shows that there's there's a lot going on in Chinese society that because of internet's surveillance and censorship, uh, there's there's a lot more resistance to the CCP than I think a lot of people expected. Remember yes. what Chen Guangchen said to you like three years ago, Shelley? Yes. The Chen Guangchen, the blind Chinese activist, he, he had gotten in trouble in China for trying to defend women who had forced abortions. And then he had been put under house arrest, escaped house arrest while blind and made it all the way up to Beijing and then made it to the U.S. embassy in Beijing. And then the U.S. got him out of China. Um, he... We interviewed him in, what, 2019? And he talked about how, you know, the perception of how Chinese people feel about the CCP is not true. Like, it's exactly what you were talking about, that, like, the that the CCP wants everybody to think that, like, everybody supports them. Uh, and you might get, like, a mistaken view if you look at some of the more nationalistic young people who are uh, out, outside of China because a lot of their parents' money came from the CCP, that kind of corruption. Um, but he said inside China, there are so many people who are very against the CCP. They just don't post about it online because they know they can't. Yeah. And they, and also because of the, the mistrust, like communist systems always make people fear and mistrust and hate each other. So I, I know uh, what, a, what a lot of people were saying, like after the bridge man is like, for them, that was a moment of like, oh my gosh, there are so many other people who think like I do. Like suddenly they understood like, oh, I'm not the only dissident. And I think these protests are going to be a big part of that. And I think what's interesting too is, you know, the Communist Party, their playbook is always to say, oh, these are just hostile foreign forces. And there was that one video we posted on, on our Twitter account 
of, you know, like somebody like telling the protest, oh, young people, don't be, you know, misled by these hostile foreign forces. It was another young person. Uh Uh, The full video was like this young guy who's in in the middle of the protest. And he's like, there are anti-Chinese forces, foreign forces around us right now. And like people just weren't buying it. Yeah, and like I think one person was like, hostile foreign forces, what about Marx oh, he and like, Engels? <laughs> yes, they were like, what foreign forces are you talking about? Are you talking about Marx? Are you talking about Lenin, Stalin? And then uh, there was like a huge uh, kind of protest around, like then all the protesters were yelling about things like, we can't even access the foreign internet. We can't leave the country. How are these foreign forces supposed to, you know, how are they supposed to contact us? You know, yeah. like it was, and I like the guy who, there was a guy who was like, where are the foreign forces coming from? And then this guy yells, the moon. Like, <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, th- sense of humor and like a, a sense of like that even the Chinese people themselves think the hostile foreign forces thing is just like BS. Well, the foreign forces can't come from the moon because as we know, the moon <laughs> has been part of Chinese territory since ancient times. Yeah. Thank you, Chang'e. But <laughs> Yeah, so that that was a, a great video, and it's also in our uh, headlines episode from Friday. Mm, yeah, but yeah, so it, I think it does show that ch- Chinese people. A lot of these protests were led by students mm-hmm. um, that are are the zero COVID policy had a big effect. I think in kind of waking a lot of people up. Yeah, on top of the you know youth unemployment and all, just the hopelessness of young people in China today. The uh, So supposedly Xi Jinping told um, he had met with some European officials in uh, Beijing on Friday. And according to comments from the European officials, Xi Jinping told them that the protests were, you know, mostly a lot of frustrated students. Hmm. And that uh, they were just sick of COVID. After a few years. Right. And, so, and, and if you're upset about a virus, what you do is you go out and protest the virus. Well, uh, some of – and then he said something about how Omicron is less lethal than previous versions of COVID. Mm-hmm. And so these European officials are, are interpreting that as China is going to loosen its zero COVID policy. That message is being pushed so much. Well, like the, there's well, actually some really interesting things that we can see that mean it might be happening. Uh, but like Xi Jinping saying this to European officials, of course, the European officials want to believe this also because like they want to do business in China. and they're, they're, Because their they're, economies are Yeah, they were too. basically telling Xi Jinping, like, you got to push, push vaccinations. This is killing us. Mm-hmm. And then she was like, oh, well, I hear Omicron is less lethal. And uh, he's like, it's know. killing you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that like, I think if China starts to loosen the zero COVID policy, I think the protests are going to be a big part of it. But I think the bigger thing is definitely the economic devastation that's Mm -hmm. happening that the CCP is desperately trying to keep under wraps. So I think that is ultimately the reason for the zero COVID turnaround is not like the protests, like they don't want that to go too far. They don't want like a nationwide uprising in any sense, but they could control that if they wanted to. The the bigger issue is the economy. Like cities are going bankrupt, but it's not just the lack of, of production happening. It's also that maintaining zero COVID is very expensive because you have to have government funded, you know, da by like the people in the hazmat suits enforcing policy. They're all migrant and the, workers. And the COVID yeah. uh, testing. And, you know, when you're doing, when a city has to do 10 million tests a day, like just the expense of this is just 
outlandish well, and earlier, it's not productive. Earlier we talked about the idea that, you know, once the, the Communist Party builds these systems, they don't just go away. It's going to be hard for them to go away. But the other thing is, like, there's been a lot of pushback for a long time of like an argument between the central government and local governments over who has to pay mm -hmm. for the PCR tests and stuff like that because people aren't paying that, right now. That communist credit card. <laughs> uh, so that is one of the issues is that like the system is expensive to maintain. Mm -hmm. But if you dismantle the system, what are going to happen to all the people who have been working as these COVID workers, right? Like the DABA, like they don't have jobs anymore. All the factories that manufacture all the COVID tests and stuff. The equipment, the tests, the even like the dot-by uniforms, mm -hmm. the masks. Uh, then you have things like, oh, well, there's this whole surveillance system with all of these like QR COVID code, apps. Yeah. COVID apps. What are you going to do with those? Like there's a bunch of things to consider. And I bet a lot of Communist Party officials themselves are invested in these companies. So they have power to make sure they don't go away. Yeah, there's a lot of um, rumors spreading around the Chinese internet right now about corruption involving the PCR tests and PCR test companies. Yeah, uh, which is more of the wonderful legacy of that intelligent, <laughs> joyful, joyful man. <laughs> he was uh, intelligent and joyful. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you're on Twitter, maybe, maybe send Diane Feinstein a nice little response to that. Oh. Gosh. Oh, she is totally so bought off. Um, but yeah, so how they, but like, I do think that as cynical as we are about zero COVID ever being stopped, there, there are some things that are happening that indicate it could be happening soon. But like, I don't think they're going to lift it all at once. Mm -hmm. It's going to be this gradual rollout. Like it's starting with the propaganda where um, People's Daily started suddenly posting articles about how COVID isn't as dangerous. Like, huh. Huh, Omicron doesn't seem to be as dangerous. Like a few months ago, they had an article about how long COVID was going to devastate the West. Mm -hmm. And then now there's an article that's like, long COVID doesn't exist. I mean, it's, it's disgusting to see newspapers and media just parroting the recommendations of government and politician without independent thought. I could not imagine living in a country like that. Well, I mean, this is a little different than just parroting, right? This is actual, like, this is from the CCP. This is the People's Daily. It is the mouthpiece of the CCP. But uh, so there's some of that. There's, oh, like, photos started flying on the Chinese internet of some PCR booths being taken down or taken away. Mm -hmm. Uh, like the sign being taken down about COVID testing being required at like an airport. Like, so people are very like hopeful right now that this is what's happening. I mean, Xi Jinping's third term is really off to an eventful start. Yeah. Wasn't it, didn't you say like Sun Trinland, who is the, the COVID czar essentially, she also said something about how like Omicron isn't as dangerous. Yeah. So you said, you said it. So when even the COVID czar is starting to say that things aren't as risky as before, like basically the Communist Party at some point has to back down from zero COVID, but they also want to save face. Yeah, they won't admit there was anything and, wrong. Right. They, they never did anything wrong, but also now there's an excuse why the policy is changing. Their circumstances are changing, that's all. Right. Like the CCP kept everyone safe this whole time from COVID. Until 
Omicron was no longer as dangerous as the original. They won so, the war on COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll have to see how this goes. But like there are actual signs that like they're starting to back down. Unlike uh, a few weeks ago when like the stock markets all went up because they thought that was going to happen. Yeah. And then more lockdowns happened. Yeah. But but now, Shelly, now is the time to invest in China. Well, also <laughs> I hear that like, you know, Beijing is basically under lockdown. Uh, you know, they do they do fun things with language of like, you know, they're not they're not locking down a city. They just lock down all the apartment blocks in a city. Yeah. I mean, that's what they were doing, essentially. Uh, then the protests happened. Yeah. But no, even still this past week. I mean, I think that like that's another thing to keep an eye on. But I think Chinese people are very aware of this now. Mm -hmm. uh, so it'll be much harder for them to get away with the whole thing of saying it's not a lockdown. It is dynamic management or like a lot of these Whatever other, you know, euphemi euphemisms they come up with to describe it. But, you know, some places in, I forget it was Shanghai or Guangzhou, they started taking the barriers down outside of apartment buildings because that's like a vis visible representation of the lockdown. So they're like, okay, we're going to get rid of these, but it doesn't necessarily mean that like everybody's going to be free to move around all the time. And we'll have to see what happens after uh, a couple of weeks from and now. And what parts of the system still remain? You know, I just had a terrifying thought. You know what system has been created during the last three years of COVID? Giant quarantine camps all over the country. What, what could those be used for after COVID? I'm sure they're just going to take them down. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Well, uh, I guess boy. it depends what happens if there are more... Um, protest. You know, one of the things that is happening is that the government is promising that people don't have to be taken to the quarantine camps anymore if they are a close contact. Yeah, didn't, like I, I think I saw something about like a quarantine camp got burned down. There is footage that claims to be of a quarantine camp burning. Yeah. I forget where, somewhere in Western China, I think, but it is not clear when What's, that yeah. happened. It is not clear if that was a, like a protest related thing or like there's just not enough context from the footage. Yeah. I mean, I know we're always very careful about like what kind of video we post because, you know, like I've seen so many people over the years like share footage of like, oh, the tanks are rolling in and it could be just like tanks going from one place to another at any point in the past like five, ten years. It, that that happened a lot in Hong Kong too, where people kept being like, "The tanks are rolling in," yeah, and it was not. It was not true. It was not true. Yeah, so it is. It is very tough, and I have a suspicion that it will become harder as the CCP tries to do things like clamp down on VPNs, which they are. Yep. Uh, to verify some of this footage, so. Yep. Well, so stay tuned for uh, updates from us on. Uh, everything that's happening in China. These, this is a very exciting time that's happening. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We post a lot of stuff there that um, doesn't make it onto the shows always, um, especially videos and photos. So, yeah. Thank you for joining us on China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. Talk to you next time.